Turn with me this morning to the book of Mark, chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 33 through 50. Mark 9, 33 through 50. I don't think I need to remind many of you that for a long time it seems that the American dream has been some variation of fame, fortune, and status. Even the so-called right to pursue happiness has fallen prey, really, to the definition of this dream. We think we should get out of the way of everyone so they can do whatever they want, have whatever they want, be comfortable, and lord it over others. We thrive on stories, however, of the lowly or unfortunate rising from poverty to power with fame, fortune, and status. But where? I almost feel like Josh has stolen my thunder with his effort on pride. Where is our humility? Well, read this passage with me. Jesus addresses that with the disciples, and for good reason. Again, verse 33 of chapter 9, they're beginning to route back to Jerusalem, where Jesus will be crucified. And they came to Capernaum, and he was in the house, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Before we pause in prayer, I do want to note a textual uh, note in your Bibles. You may notice that in some translations, two verses are missing, verses 44 and 46. They are actually identical to verse 48, so that it repeats the phrase three times in some manuscripts, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. However, based on the best manuscripts that many translators have, we feel that that was only uh, original to verse 48. 
But as we consider this reading of God's word, let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, this is your word. It is serious. But Lord, it is true. Lord, we pray that this word will fall upon believing ears because you have opened them by your spirit and upon understanding hearts because they too have been opened. Open our minds to receive your word today and apply it to our lives. Lord, let everything here be consistent with your word or else pass away never to be heard from again. For your word shall stand forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I guess probably some of you might be sports fans. And you may have switched, if you're a college sports fan, from college football to college basketball. I understand now here in the South, some people do like those sports. But the fans have been encouraged in the last few years to switch from following a team to following individual players. It's all about money and talent, after all. Especially with what's called the NIL, a fancy word for saying, let's pay the players for playing their sports and having these talents. And, of course, the transfer portal. If you're a sports fan, you understand what that means, and that means that you're only going to have those prime athletes for maybe one or two years, and they will move on. I remember coaches and programs used to be all about players serving and playing for the team. But increasingly, college sports has become about pleasing and coddling the top players to get them to stay at all costs. Talk about a recipe for disunity. Yet this disunity and power play is nothing new. It's not unique to America. It's not unique to sports. It's not unique to our current age. The disciples were doing it too. After all, here they are on the path down the road to Jerusalem. That's where Mark is going to take us through the rest of the book until Jesus is crucified. And as they're on that journey to Jerusalem, they're at the very start. They've just come from across the Galilee in the region of Philip the Tetrarch. They've now gone back to their base in the early part of Mark, to the town of Capernaum, where Peter's and Andrew's parents' house was. Assumedly, this is the house where they're entering into. And what do the disciples talk about on that journey following Jesus? Who is the greatest? You can imagine Peter, James, and John saying, well, you know, we're the inner circle. We got to see his glory up on the mountain. And the other disciples may have said, look, you were up on the mountain, but we were busy trying to do work down here. Whatever it was, they were wondering who would be the greatest in the kingdom. But, of course, Jesus turns that on its head, doesn't he? He says the true believer in Christ who follows him must be willing to serve, must be willing to share, and must be willing to sacrifice. The first little section here in the house that he's teaching them, these three teachings, here's the first. What were you discussing on the way? What do you think the disciples thought when he asked that question? You know, it's kind of funny. This is the picture you get when a teacher comes into the room. Everybody's been wild and doing everything. And the teacher asks, what's going on here? And what do the students do? Not only are they quiet, they don't look at the teacher. 
It's like a little bunch of little boys here, isn't it? They kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So here's what he teaches. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. That seems to be completely contrary to the way of the world. You see, he's telling them they are, must be willing to serve, first of all, by setting aside selfish ambitions. What is it that the disciples wanted? In fact, James and John in another place recruit their mother. And the mother comes and says, can you provide for my two boys to sit on your right and left when you come into your kingdom? And of course, Jesus calls these two guys, one of whom will be known as the disciple of love, John. He calls them the sons of thunder. In fact, they're the two guys who said, walking through Samaria, Lord, we can call fire down from heaven upon them. They were ambitious guys. And he says, it's not ambition that gets you into heaven. The one who would be first in heaven must be a servant. What an irony of this conversation on the way to Jerusalem. Here is Jesus who in another place will say, I came not to be served, but to serve. And here are they thinking, we just can't wait until we get to the place where we're served. The question is, whose glory do they desire? Isn't that the question that we must ask ourselves? Whose glory do we desire? But when we're willing to serve, then we're willing to take the place of a servant. Here's what it says, must be last of all and servant of all. A servant sees service as a duty. But he also simply serves. One of the things we're going to be doing later on in the service is installing deacons in our church. And you know, the funny thing about deacon, you know, there are all kinds of ideas from different churches and different denominations of what a deacon is, but the, the literal meaning of the word deacon is servant. So these guys, when we install them here, and I joked last week in our congregation meeting that, that when you uh, install somebody, it's kind of like you're installing the light fixtures and so forth in, in the room. The idea here is you're installing them, not lifting them up above everybody else and saying, okay, everybody, be like this deacon. No, we're installing them as the official servants of the church to meet your needs, particularly physically, in this spiritual office. When, in other words, these three men that will come forward, we, in a sense, are officially putting them last in our church. Sorry, guys. Because they are willing to serve. Of course, that means all of us should have this heart, not just these deacons. And here, if you're willing to serve, here's what else you do. He takes this child. Mark tells us he actually puts him in the crook of his arm. He's embracing this child as he speaks. He's not just here uh, 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 an item uh, up here for some kind of purpose of explaining things. He's actually taking this child, embracing this child to himself. And he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. 
And of course, this word for child is, is someone without rights, privileges, the lowest of the low, is receiving those in Christ with the lowest status. I've been in a room of churchmen who all seek out the most reputable guy or the guy with the biggest reputation or the one who wrote the most books or the one who it says the most and is the best debater on the floor. I remember and know those times who seek those individuals out. I know those in church who see somebody with fancy dress and they know is wealthy and they'll flock around those individuals with power or status or influence. But what does he say? The one who serves receives those in Christ with the lowest status. I remember when I was a teenager, my family took their turn. Our church took their turn picking up a man by the name of Keith. I was a teenager. My mother and I would have to go because my dad was a pastor. He couldn't drive and pick him up. So we would go and pick up Keith. He lived in the next town over. And we had to sit with him, and my mother and I would have to sit on either side of Keith so that he wouldn't escape from the pew. We had pews in that church. This aging man had no social skills. He had a tragic past, and tales were told that he had a particularly tragic thing that happened in his life, and he snapped, and his social skills were all there. He would go after people and speak to them right in their face, make them completely uncomfortable. He wasn't really all there, as we say. But the church took time to pick him up and bring him and make him feel like one of them. This is true servanthood. It's even the refusal to brag about your service. You see, I wouldn't have done that on my own. The church itself was called to do that, to receive even the one of lowest status in the name of Christ, to truly love and truly seek to respect those in Christ and those made in his image, particularly brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why I said in Scripture, don't make a discriminatory decision about those who come into your church if someone comes in who's wealthy, don't give them a place of privilege. Don't be distinctive in that way. Don't show preference, but be willing to serve. But here's John. John hears this, and he says to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and he tried to stop him because he was not following us. Jesus said, do not stop him, for one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink, because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. What is he saying here? We must be willing to share. What are we sharing? Not just water. You know, here's a cup of water. If anybody's thirsty, come up and get it. My germs are in it. Is that what we mean? It means to share the glory. We must be willing to show, share with those who are not in our authorized group. Now, there's a place here for authorizing the group. In fact, yesterday, one of our job at Presbytery to determine who would be among our members. 
There was someone that was coming in for transfer of membership, and we gave a cursory exam in this case because he was transferring from another presbytery. And so and there is a place by which, by protecting the peace and purity of the church, we invite those into our authorized group to protect the faithfulness of the church to the scriptures. John said there was an exorcist, someone who was driving out demons, who was not in their group, but he was doing it in the name of Jesus. And evidently there were results. Of course, the funny thing is, just earlier in the chapter, Jesus had come down the mountain. Nine of the disciples were trying to cast out a mute and deaf demon from a boy, and they were unsuccessful. But here's John saying, someone who evidently was successful and was doing it in the name of Jesus was not one of the 12 disciples. And evidently they had gone trying to stop them from doing the work. And what does John say? He wasn't following us. Notice he doesn't say, he wasn't following you. Because what was he doing? It's in the name of Christ, he was rebuking the demons. They were coming out. And John says he wasn't among our group. This is our glory. This is our ministry. We tried to stop them, but we couldn't. And Jesus said, what are you doing? He says, don't stop him, for no one who does the mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. We must be willing to share even with those who might steal our glory. How many times do I find myself going down the road and looking at all the cars at another church and thinking, wow, they've got a lot of people. And when we say that, what are we saying with the little tiny voice in our hearts? What are they doing to get all those people? That's one thing we say. The other thing we say is, Lord, why aren't all those people coming here? Instead of saying, praise be to God if they're really hearing the gospel at this church. After all, this isn't the only faithful church. This isn't the only faithful denomination. Now, we know that there are good and bad churches. There are some teaching the scriptures and there are some teaching other things. But if someone is teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and people are flocking to hear that person, we should be praising God, not seeking to stop them and find everything wrong with them. Instead, we must be willing to share rather than steal, or rather than to, to consider them stealing our glory. But it's also with those sharing with those who make the smallest contributions. What about this guy who gives a cup of water because someone belongs to Christ? Now you have to understand, in their culture, giving that cup of water, this was not an exceedingly wonderful thing to do where you would get monetary uh, funds for doing that. This was something in their culture that they were expected to do. This was something, if you didn't do that, you were considered bad. You were considered rude. It would be like somebody coming into your house and you just uh, refuse to allow them to sit on your furniture. You know, here it is. You are expected culturally to do this thing, and yet Jesus says even the smallest action where a reward is unexpected, yet here God will reward those who do such a thing in the name of Christ. 
Interestingly, unlike Matthew, this is the only reward recorded in all of the book of Mark, as far as heavenly rewards. But the point is this, even if you do the smallest thing that really culturally should be expected of you, if you're doing it as a servant willing to share the glory of the kingdom with somebody else, even for the lowest of the low, you will be rewarded. I told people yesterday I was at a presbytery meeting from, really it started at 9, we got there at 8.30, we weren't done until 4.30. Yesterday, we had another individual who came to Presbytery, and I disagreed with his position on a certain thing, and I voted against this man from coming in to preach in our pulpits. He'd been a pastor in the PCA for 44 years. I just disagreed with this view. At the same time, I'm a big fan of Baptist preacher Votie Bauckham. And you know, he holds some theological positions that I wouldn't want him preaching in my pulpits in my presbytery. Because I don't agree with him on certain issues because I'm a Presbyterian and he's a Baptist. And there are certain theological issues, namely infant baptism, that he doesn't agree with. But on almost everything else, I agree wholeheartedly with his views and I think he's a wonderful teacher and preacher. You see, we have a tendency sometimes to be so exclusive that we belittle everybody else who does not hold all the exact positions that we hold. But true humility seeks to share Christ's work with his people because it glorifies Christ and not us. You see, any glory to Jesus is welcome. My glory, your glory, this church's glory, is completely unimportant. Instead, we must be willing to sacrifice. This is the third teaching of this scripture. It's a very serious one. He says, and he probably still has one of this child with him as he's teaching. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. You must be willing to sacrifice to protect the small believers. Again, this word small here doesn't refer just to a child. This refers to someone who is small in significance or in importance or even in stature. And here he says, you must protect this child rather than scandalize him. You know, that's the word here that we get in English from the Greek word, scandalizo, which means causing to stumble. It would be better if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea rather than to cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble or be scandalized. I can think of times when I've set a bad example. And a child might look at me in that example and might run from the father rather than to the father. This particular picture or scene is awful, isn't it? You know what those millstones were. This is actually the upper millstone. Uh, the language tells us that this millstone was turned by a donkey. It was so heavy a person could not turn it. So the donkey would turn this millstone, and by doing this, they would grind the grain. And so here it is, this humongous stone, 
And in the culture of the day, at times, this was actually done. There was a guy by the name of Judas who was a Galilean. We read about him in the book of Acts. And we're told historically by Suetonius, one of the uh, historians of the day, he said that this was the way they executed Judas the Galilean. They tied him to a millstone and threw him into the sea. In other words, he drowned. It's better if you're drowned than you scandalize these young ones. Instead, you must protect them. You see, you must protect them at all costs rather than scandalize them, rather than yourself deserve a terrible drowning. You think Jesus isn't serious about teaching young ones? He isn't serious about teaching new believers or serious about teaching those who are hurting or struggling? He says, if you fail to protect them and instead you lead them into sin, you cause them to stumble and be tempted and go another way, then it's better that you drown a horrible death. But the sacrifice is not just a sacrifice for those who are young or new to the faith. He says this, if, you, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better if you enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. He repeats this with the foot and with the eye. Now this is terrible, isn't it? And again, here's this word. First of all, we're protecting against our own temptations. That's what he's referring to. Of course, you know, he's not literally saying, here, okay, get out of saw from the garage, go out there and cut off your hand. You know, I, th I think my wife reminded me there was actually a little House on the Prairie episode where the mother was upset, her, her leg was hurting, and, and everybody else was gone, and then she was ready in her uh, state of, of despair and her state affected by the situation to cut off her leg. That's not, of course, what it's talking about. But notice the words here. If your hand causes you to sin, if your foot causes you to sin, if your eye causes you to sin, again, it's this word, scandalize. In other words, if the parts of your body are scandalizing you and tempting you to go sin, in other words, to stumble before God, and the assumption here is to be put off the path of righteousness after we have been saved, then here he said to protect against this, instead of scandalizing ourselves, and notice all these three things. What do these three things indicate? He's not saying literally hand, foot, and eye. He's saying the hand that leads to action, the foot that determines where we go, and the eye that considers what we see and what we desire. In other words, in every sphere of life, we should protect against our temptations, even to the point of great sacrifice. Cutting things out of our life. As the guy in Hebrews tells us, the one who wrote the book of Hebrews, he says, throw off every weight or sin that clings so closely to us. And of course, threaten us with what's called Gehenna. Gehenna, of course, being the unquenchable fire. This word for hell is the word Gehenna. The word for hell is, uh, is related, perhaps, as we think, in historical situation in this part of the gospel, in this part of history. There was a fire, a dump, outside of Jerusalem, and that dump was burned. 
But the dump that was there, that fire, actually never really went out. There was always smoke rising from that fire. You know, sometimes it would be a, a, a stronger fire or hotter fire than other times, but, but it was always smoldering, always ready to burn. He says here, this is what hell is, the unquenchable fire. If anyone tries to tell you there is no hell or tries to tell you that scripture teaches that hell does not last forever or is not so bad a place, take them to this passage where it's possible by some manuscripts that Jesus actually repeats three times it's the place of unquenchable fire. This word unquenchable is another word we get in English. It's the word asbestos. Asbestos fire. Hot fire. Terrible fire. Here it is. There are great ramifications to remaining in sin. I remember years ago, some Christian brothers mocked two individuals I know who sacrificed at great cost. One of them sacrificed his Beatles collection. He had an extensive Beatles collection, and he felt like that Beatles collection, because of the lyrics and the music and the lifestyle of the group, to him, it led him astray. And he felt, in his particular circumstance, that it was inappropriate for him to give them to somebody else who might fall in the same thing. So rather than sell them, rather than give them away, he threw them out and destroyed them. All kinds of other Christians told him, why did you do this? You could have gotten money for that. You could have given money to the church for that. You could have done this or that or the other thing. But yet he was doing exactly what Jesus said. If this leads you astray, get rid of it. Another individual, the son of a pastor at seminary, one of my professors, he went off to a movie with all of his friends and some seminary students. And he went to that movie, and it got to a place in that movie where there was a nude scene. And that individual, with these seminary students and everybody else, that scene came up and he walked out of the theater. You know, the ones who criticized him the most was the seminary students who were with him. That was after all artistic. That was something that was okay. You want to know is the movie Titanic. It was a wonderful movie. Everybody's talking to it, a blockbuster. You know, that was just one little scene. It was artistic. Get over it. Grow up a little bit. Instead, he knew that those images in his mind led him to temptation, and he walked out at the sacrifice of criticism and lack, perhaps, of relationship with others. Sin is so serious, Jesus is telling us. There are eternal consequences if we refuse to stop the circumstances by which we remain in sin. For everyone, he says, will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt is lost its saltiness, how will you make it salt again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Okay, he's just said this. Where the, where the worm does not die, the fire is not quenched. It's so serious. And all, what is this about salt? <clears throat> it's to protect our mission and our identity. On one hand, he says... For everyone will be salted with fire. Those who understood the sacrificial system of the Old Testament recognized that many of the sacrifices had salt with them. In fact, there was a particular sacrifice that said you must salt it before you give it. And so they recognized this is a reference to the sacrificial idea or sacrificial life. 
In other words, your life must be different than the lives around you because there are ways in which you have sacrificed to follow me. Secondly, we all know how important salt is, and those of us who have heart problems, so when, when we miss salt, it's because we miss the flavoring. Salt is a flavor. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? This, of course, is a reference to the fact that they would get some of their salt from the Dead Sea or other areas, and it was actually mixed with other chemicals, and because of that, it could lose its saltiness. Now we use much more pure salt, so that doesn't really happen much anymore. But for them, that was a reality. And of course, if the salt lost its saltiness, it had no flavor. You see, Christians of all people are the flavor of the earth. We're to be those who are making the earth a more pleasant place to be. We are those who are pointing to Christ and to life, and things should be more exciting and beautiful because of Christians glorifying God. But the third thing of this is a reminder of the salt in yourselves. What does this salt do? It preserves culture around us. So, so on the one hand, it is a symbol of sacrifice. On another level, it is the flavor we give to the world. And the third thing is salt, of course, was a preservative. And because of this preservative, this preserves the culture from falling into further chaos and decay. That is why it is so important for us to be citizens not only of the kingdom, but to be citizens of the kingdom where we live, that we are promoting good and moral laws, good and moral leaders, and, and all of those things. If people want to tell me what should you vote for in the election, I would say if you can, find someone who is a good moral leader, don't laugh, and try to find ways in which we can support good moral laws and good and just things in our society. And then what happens? We can live at peace with each other. Okay, so kind of go back to the beginning. Remember the context of this. Jesus is giving all this teaching after the disciples have been arguing who is the greatest. And I think, here's what might happen in a group today. We might say, whose idea was that? And when we hear that, if it's a good idea and wonderful blessings have come from that idea, on the good sense of that, we want to do our best. And when we do our best and something good happens, we want that recognition. That's not necessarily a bad thing. But it is bad if we want that recognition in order to gain and achieve status, power, influence, to lord it over others so that we get the glory that should go to God. You see, there's no room for lordship in a kingdom ministry if that lordship is not Jesus Christ. If the Lord is not Jesus Christ and instead it's a pastor or an elder or a deacon or whoever it is in the church, if it's all about a person or a group or a program or even a church body itself and it's not about the head Jesus Christ, it's not of the Lord. Christians, your job is to serve. Your job is to share ministry. Not stop others from doing that. And your job is to sacrifice for Christ's sake. 
because there's even life and death at stake. And think of this. We don't want anyone, not ourselves, not our children, not our grandchildren, not the meanest guy down the street. We don't want them to go to the worm that never dies and to the fire that is never quenched. We don't hear enough sometimes. The brimstone and the fire sermons. It really exists. There are those I've heard it, and you've heard it. They joke and they say, well, you know, I'll just enjoy hell with my friends when I get there. <laughs> Blasphemy. It's a terrible place. Think of this. Where darkness is, where gnashing of teeth will be, where you will not experience any warmth, any welcome. There will be fire and terrible things there for all eternity. Don't go to the world. By Christ's grace, serve, share, sacrifice God's glory. Glory to Christ. Let's pray. Father, help us. We hear these words and we know. We know when we want it to be the best for the wrong reasons. We know when we've argued about who is better than another. We know those times when we have wanted to not share glory with others. We want it to be all about ourselves. Father, we know those times when we refuse to serve. Lord, help us. Help us to repent of these sins, but Lord, also help us to marvel that you would use us at all. Lord, be glorified. In our lives, our thoughts, our deeds, our actions, where we go, what we do, all those things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.